A number of years ago, I got curious about this guy we talk about all the time, the Buddha. We talk about his teachings. And as I got more curious, it led me on a pilgrimage to India. And I went and I saw, went to the places where he is purported to have been born, where he lived as a kid, where he became enlightened, the places that he practiced for a long time, all those years that he did long retreat as we are doing here. And much of what is, remains there is archeological in the sense that it's ruins, parts of buildings that were built later in his life or mostly after he left, after he had died. But there's still a sense of, wow, this was a real person. There's a place that you can go that is pieced together that that, this was his walking path. And you can walk, do walking meditation back and forth where the Buddha is purported to have done that. Who was this person? We talk about his teachings a lot. But in many ways, his life and his practice and his teachings were all one, woven together. His direct experience in his life was what he was talking about. It's what we practice. And his life and our life in this practice are connected, related. So I want to begin a, what might be a multi-part story, an exploration of the Buddha's life from the point of view of what does this, how is this relevant to us? What does it offer to our practice? And this biography and autobiography of the Buddha, when I first started looking into it, I went, well, is it true? Like, how do we know this? It was a long time ago. It was 2,600 years ago. And the pieces come to us in different ways. And do we know the specifics for sure? No, probably not. But there's lots of pieces, and there's a lot of layers. One of the important things is that the suttas, the earliest teachings of the Buddha, have a lot of stories from the Buddha's life. And the Buddha uses his own life as a teaching story. He shares about it in order to offer it. 
And of course the suttas probably got modified and things got added. And the first true biography of the Buddha was many centuries later after his death. And we don't know how much that biography came from other materials that were available then and how much it was oral history coming down. But we get more from that and more later editions. And then when we get to much later in the Mahayana tradition, we get a lot of what hagiography. In other words, the stories of the saint and a lot of um, more fanciful, archetypal story. But that has a lot to offer as well. And different aspects and lenses through which we see this story will serve us at different times. Sometimes it can offer us great faith that it's possible for us. And then ultimately the wisdom of doing the practice ourselves. But I think what the Buddha has most to offer in his, this story is an inspiration. That it's possible for us too. So he was purported to have been born somewhere around 563 before the Common Era, or maybe 80 years earlier. We're not sure. He was born to the Sakyan clan in northern India, and this was a tributary area of the state of Kosala. So it, this was an agrarian society. He was a prince in a sub-area. So he was born to the noble class. The caste system was very much in place. And he was born to the nobles. He was born as Siddhartha Gautama. Gautama. And like all uh, religious leaders and saints, there's many stories of his birth. There's some very simple ones. <laughs> but he was under, it was to the best of we have, his mother was in the process of traveling from where she lived with her husband in the Sakyan clan, back to her family of origin, which was more up in what's now southern Nepal. Because at that time, it was tradition that a woman would go back to her mother's family to have a baby. So she was partway there and had the baby. Didn't quite make it. Sort of like the baby in the taxi cab story. But she had it out there in what's now Lumbini. And some of the stories say that he came out as a glowing child and stood on his own feet, (laughs) took five steps to the north, five steps to the east, and so on. 
And there was a wise man who came and saw him, a Sita. And a Sita cried when he saw the child because he said he wasn't, wasn't going to be around to hear the teachings. There was also the prediction that he would either be a, teach, uh, a teacher of immense wisdom or a king. So he was taken back to the palace, a couple of Vatsu, and he grew up there. And he grew up as a noble prince of that time. And his king, his father, who was the king, had a strong preference for which of these two predictions came true. Much more interested in having his son take over the kingdom than whatever this other idea was. So not unlike many of us, he started out in a family that had ideas about what he should be when he grew up and arranged things in order to convince him and uh, sort of keep him on that path. And so the way his father did this was made sure he had everything he needed. All the luxuries of the time. So this is what he says about that. He says, the Buddha says, I was delicate, most delicate, supremely delicate. Lily pools were made for me at my father's house solely for my benefit. Blue lilies flowered in one, white lilies in another, red lilies in a third. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban, tunic, lower garments, and cloak were all made of Banari's cloth. This is modern-day Varanasi, which has been known for thousands of years of making fine silk. So he's telling us he was clothed head to toe in silk. A white sunshade was held over me day and night so that no cold or heat or dust or grit or dew might inconvenience me. I had three palaces, one for the winter, one for the summer, and one for the rains. In the rains palace, I was entertained by minstrels with no men among them. For the four months of the rains, I never went down to the lower palace. Though meals of broken rice with lentil soup are given to the servants and retainers in other people's houses, in my father's house, white rice and meat was given to them. Well, whether or not being surrounded by minstrels with no men among them is your idea of luxury, the point is that he was being surrounded by sensual pleasure. Everything that could be imagined was being offered to him. We don't know. It may or may not have been actually what he wanted. 
but that was being, he was being surrounded in this cloak. This is not unlike us in our daily lives. When, you know, it's easy for us to get very fancy ideas of palaces and what was available though. This is an agrarian society 2,600 years ago that had not yet invented fired bricks. So things were made of mud bricks. And, you know, there's no running water, there's no electricity, there's no, you know, so it's, our lives are infinitely more luxurious in the realm of the sensual ease. And we, like him, are, can be coaxed into a kind of hmm, sleepiness, a kind of not noticing, being put to sleep. Uh, the Rumi uh, poem comes to mind of don't go back to sleep. Don't go back to sleep. But we often are asleep in a certain way, bathed in this luxury of the senses. And he married his cousin, Yosadara, at the age of 16. And his first child was at the age of 29. And we don't know a lot about what happened in between there. Stephen Batchelor, who studied this time period a lot, um, proposes that he was probably being sent away and educated in the, to the places, Tusla and some places where um, a young noble would be educated at that time. But we don't know for sure. But he was still there, living this life, being taken care of. But at the age of 29, something started to stir in him. He started to wonder, is this really the life I want to live? Is pleasure enough? Probably many of you have wondered this too. Come to some point in your life. It might have been long before 29 or a long time after. Where we go, what's going on here? What am I not paying attention to? Is this life that my culture is telling me is the way to live? Is this it? There's something that stirs in us, just as it did in the Buddha, or you wouldn't be here. What is that? That little movement. This is what the Buddha noticed. He said, whilst I had such power and good fortune, yet I thought, when an untaught, ordinary man who is subject to aging, not safe from aging, sees another who is aged, he is shocked 
humiliated and disgusted, for he forgets that he himself is no exception. But I too am subject to aging, not safe from aging, and so it cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is aged. When I considered this, the vanity of youth entirely left me. And I thought, when an untaught ordinary man who is subject to sickness, and he goes on to say, when I considered that I too were subject to sickness, the vanity of health entirely left me. And I thought too, when an untaught ordinary man who is subject to death, not saved from death, sees another who is dead, he is shocked, humiliated, and disgusted for he forgets that he himself is no exception. I too am subject to death, not safe from death. And so it cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted. When I considered this, the vanity of life entirely left me. The vanity of youth and health and life the conviction that this sensual pleasure is going to go on forever. And he goes on to say that he realizes at this point, he says, the home life is dusty. And I think that's a very interesting phrase. He says, it's crowded and dusty. And part of me goes, it might literally, those mud bricks, it might literally have been quite dusty. (laughs) But he's also pointing to these complications that it looks all pleasant, but there's still these vicissitudes of life, the pleasure and pain of it, the gain and loss the fame and disrepute, the praise and blame. He talks about these vicissitudes of the lay life that when we're caught in wanting only gain and fame and pleasure, then we're stuck in this endless cycle because with one comes the other. Someone recently, I don't remember who, said, what we all want is to have all five sense gates, well, the sixth too, experiencing pleasant, uh, having pleasant experiences at all times at all sense gates. And when that's not what's happening, we're a little disconcerted by it. So he's becoming disenchanted with this life. In later talks, later on he talks about those who have little dust in their eyes. That they start to see through this. 
this effort to establish what is truly important, what matters, to what will you orient? Where do we look for satisfaction? So he starts to think maybe there's a different possibility. He says, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought after what was also subject to these things. Then I thought, why being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things, seeing danger in them, I sought after the unborn, the unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled supreme surcease of bondage, Nibbana. So he is proposing that there's another possibility. And in this, he decides that he needs to go looking. He needs to go for, on a search. And you hear in this also the later stories of the four messengers. It, that was in the suttas, but referring to somebody else. But it's very much what his experience was acknowledging that what's here is not satisfying ultimately. And he decides to set off. And as the story goes, when he left, his parents were crying. And in another story, he left in the middle of the night. But what's consistent is that he left the comfort. He left the attachments of his life. The cloak of what appears comfortable, the ignorance of things just sort of as they are settled in there in the coziness of the sensual pleasure, and he left it behind. And one of the things he did leave behind was his wife and his newly born son. And I know for some people, the the thought that he would do this is quite upsetting, that he would, as a father, leave. And I, you know, to us this day, that doesn't make any sense. And it's probably true at that time that a prince doesn't have a lot to do with the raising of his son, that it's done by others and by the women. But it is interesting that in some ways the story is almost the most shocking version of renunciation. Leaving everything, including a wife and a new child. often talked about as the great renunciation 
And the renunciation of these mm, luxuries, these pleasures, in pursuit of something greater. And this is a very important quality of renunciation. It's not about mm, forcing ourselves to let go of something that we really want. It's the recognition that something more, more satisfying is possible. And all of you have engaged in this process. You have come here. You have let go. You've renounced all those pleasures of life the outside life, some of which you might like more than others, but, you know, you've given up a lot to be here, talking, connection, access to whatever it is you might want, whether it's a particular food or a particular item, whatever you brought, that's what you have. Let go of sort of running your own show, having your own particular agenda for the day. But in each one of these, the renunciation is turning towards this greater happiness, letting go of talking to explore the deeper truths of silence, letting go of all the access and things that we could choose for simplicity, letting go of all those choices around things and stuff in order to cultivate contentment with what we already have. We get to the on retreat really feel and bump up against what's truly important. Everybody has moments where they go, oh, I wish I had this, or I wish, you know, this food, or that piece of clothing, or couldn't I just, you know, bop out to the store somewhere and get this thing I'm craving? Our minds looking for something, falling back towards the old habits. And then we remember, ah, I'm here for something much more. (coughs) What I eat is not the most important thing. What I'm wearing, exactly all, I mean, And I think about what he renounced and moved into in this amazing luxury that we are all living in here. And sometimes it's easy to forget that we're in a practice of renunciation here in our fine, beautiful temple and nice rooms and hot water and great food. But this is still a practice that's pointing to what's most important. 
So he goes out away from the palace in search, seeking. And even though he's spoken of as the self-awakened one, because ultimately he found his own way, he still went first to teachers to see what they could teach him. And he went first to a teacher, Alara Kalama, and learned from him what he had to teach. And first he heard the teachings that Alara Kalama had, and then he practiced it. And the teachings that Alara Kalama had were concentration teachings, practices of deep states of absorption. And he he says that he got to this very deep state of absorption, the base consisting of nothingness, is how it's referred to. And after he had attained this level, Alara Kalama said to him, So you know the teaching that I know. I know the teaching that you know. As I am, so so you are. So you are, so am I. Come, friend, let us now lead the community together. So he learned all that the teacher had to teach and said, his teacher said, yes, okay, let's keep going. And what he had learned were these incredible states of bliss and ease available in concentration. But what he noticed was that when the state ended, it was all still the same. And it was the state came and went and it was not something reliable. It was not what he was looking for. And so he said, this teaching does not lead to dispassion, to fading of lust, to cessations, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana, but only to the base consisting of nothingness. I was not satisfied with that teaching. I left it to pursue my search. So he continues on and goes and looks for another teacher. And he does. He finds another one, Yudaka Ramaputta. And again, stays with him, learns his teaching, practices, and gets to an even higher or deeper level of absorption. And in this case, Ramaputta says to him, wow, you have this. You've got it totally wired. Why don't you be the lead teacher here? And the Buddha says, no, this still isn't it. This isn't it. And one of the things I like about this, and we're going to keep going as he goes around, that it's a process. But he is learning along the way. He's gaining a lot of skills. But he doesn't stop just because it's found another deeper, pleasant experience. He continues his search, learning what he can, and then carrying on. Hmm. 
So I wanted to read you this poem from Mary Oliver. I meant to read it earlier, but I still want to read it. It's called The Journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late. Late enough in the wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So the Buddha continues on his journey. He, like us, determined to save the only life he could. And at this point, he spends time practicing, as he says, in awe-inspiring abodes as orchard shrines, woodland shrines, and tree shrines, which make the hair stand up. So what he was doing was he was doing the practice of the time of going to places that were full of spirits and scary, you know, our version, the charnel grounds, our version of going and practicing in the graveyard. And he said, and while I dwelt there, a deer would approach me or a peacock would knock off a branch or the wind would rustle the leaves. Then I thought, surely this is the fear and dread coming. I thought, Why do I dwell in constant expectation of the fear and dread? So he's recognizing it's like it's it's a peacock and a deer, but it scares him. And he realizes he's always just about to be afraid or just afraid of what's about to happen. And he thought, why not subdue that fear and dread while maintaining the posture I am in when it comes to me? So he says, and while I walked, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither stood nor sat nor laid down till I had subdued that fear and dread. While I stood, the fear and dread came upon me, but I neither walked nor sat nor laid down till I had subdued that fear and dread. While I sat, it came in the same, and while I lay, it came. And I did not move until I had subdued that fear and dread. This is a very interesting aspect of the story because we don't hear a lot later on in the suttas about fear. And yet it's very similar to the experience of other teachers. You may have heard the story of Ajahn Chah, some of you, his story of fear and dread in the night and the intensity of that experience. And I think fear comes 
visits us quite often in our journey. Whenever we are entering unknown territory, our own version of the charnel grounds, the the unfamiliar. And part of our practice is to sit with it. That's what he's describing, a willingness to sit there. And I'm not sure he uses, the translation uses the word subdue. I don't know about you, I've never had much luck subduing fear. But I have had the experience of being willing to sit with it. And recognizing over time that it means something new is happening. Something that I don't already know. Some place, as I mentioned, I think on the, one of the first days, the, some place that what we, some closet, some corner of our experience that is unexplored as yet, is opening. And to sit still, or to keep walking, or to stand, not run away. So this too was part of his journey, part of his process as he was moving along. And then as he, after he moved through his fear, he moved on to another set of practices that was very familiar in the time, ascetic practices. And he tries different ones. So the first one he tried was crushing mind with mind. I can't say I exactly know what that is, but I can say... I'm familiar with my version. That, and maybe you know yours, where it's just like, I am going to make it through this, or I'm going to stop this thinking, or if I just sit here long enough, this pain has got to go away. Well, he tried that, and then he moved on. So... If you know, good to learn from the Buddha that you don't need to stay with that technique. Then he tried another one, which I hope you won't try, to stop his breathing. Now why he, it must have been sort of, you know, an idea that was in the air at the time that somehow this would lead to enlightenment. So he says, though tireless energy was aroused in me, an unremitting mindfulness established. Yet my body, when he's tried to stop his breath, was overwrought and uncalm because I was exhausted by the painful effort. But such painful feelings as arose in me gained no power over my mind. Well, so he discovered that his mind was independent of this pain, but it wasn't actually freeing him. But again, he noticed that there was something that he learned there. That his mind was not dependent on the ease in his body. So he took this a little further. 
and decided to try not eating. That, well, maybe I can... And this is still um, present in ascetic practices today. An idea that somehow if we can separate the mind from the body by mm, the excruciating, doing the excruciating to the body, this immense pain or abuse of the body, that that will cause the mind to somehow be released from it. And so he stopped eating. Or one of the stories is he took a grain of rice per day. Sounds a little hard to live on. But we can do this in our own way, in our practice, a kind of pushing and striving. Sometimes we waver back and forth between being in a kind of sleepy fog and forcing, pushing harder. Sometimes people stay in their posture, you know, in a sitting and don't get up. And I know people have actually hurt themselves, hurt their knees because there's knee pain and they just stay, I'm going to do this. I don't know of anybody who's become enlightened doing that, which is fortunate because if we we think that it might be a good idea then, but I don't think so. So he got super, super thin with this ascetic practice. The story is that he could reach from the front side of him and touch the front of his spine. There was nothing in between. And he describes it this way. If I made water or evacuated my bowels, I fell on my face. If I, if I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair, rotted at its roots, fell away from my body as I rubbed because of eating so little. My skin had gone gray, etc. So, in... He was doing this with great intensity. And he had some friends, five other ascetics that he was doing this with. And he was doing the most extreme version of it. But he had companions on the path, which I think is very interesting. Even at this early point, long before he is the Buddha, he had teachers, He had friends. He was doing this in community with others. Doesn't mean every meditation was, but he was not isolated. What was the point of all this renunciation? He started to wonder, what truly needs to be renounced? Is it the food that needs to be renounced? Or perhaps is it the delusions of the mind? And he started to realize that there's this outer renunciation that is important. But then 
there's an inner renunciation. What is that inner renunciation that is not just a matter of less and less food, less and less of the physical. And he realized the wanting flesh becomes the mind. In other words, this body that he had so sacrificed becomes the mind. He was getting stuck. And he said, I need to do something different. I shall have more of mindfulness, of understanding. I shall have greater concentration if he eats something, if he takes care of the body. And he says, later he says, I shall now break with understanding as with a stone, a raw clay pot. So there's something very important here. He realizes that the direction he needs to go is towards mindfulness, towards understanding, not towards simply uh, suppressing the body in this way. So the effort There's still effort involved, but there was a lot of effort and striving going down the wrong direction. This is part of what we do in our practice. We try one thing, see how it goes, and then we reevaluate. I had a friend, I used to be a, uh, a climbing guide And I still can remember my friend, he would be um, helping people who were just new to climbing and they would be up on a rock somewhere trying to climb up and they'd be like, they just keep grabbing the same hold and pulling up and falling off and they'd do it again and again and finally he'd yell from the bottom, he'd say, that, oh, he he was a southern, he was from the south important. And he would yell up, well, that ain't working. Try something else. (laughs) This is a trial and error business, even for us, not just for the Buddha. So it's really helpful for us to look at our practice and see, okay, what am I doing? How's it going? Is this useful? Where is the effort leading in the right direction? Where, how am I gaining more understanding, insight, clarity, ease, deeper happiness? So as the Buddha was having his version of try something different, he, a vision came to him, a, rem, a memory of a time when he was relaxing in his youth under a rose apple tree 
And this is what he says. I thought of a time when my Sakyan father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual desires. So that part's there. Secluded from unwholesome things, I had entered upon and abode in the first meditation, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. So he remembers this experience where he's relaxed and clear. There's a pleasure to it. And he says, might that be the way to enlightenment? Then following up that memory, there came the recognition that this was the way to enlightenment. Then I thought, why am I afraid of such pleasure? It is, pleasure that ha- it is a pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual desires and unwholesome things. Then I thought, I am not afraid of such pleasure, for it has nothing to do with sensual desires and unwholesome things. And then he says, it is not possible to attain that pleasure with a body so excessively emaciated. Suppose I ate some solid food, something luxurious like some boiled rice and bread. So he decides to try something different. He goes and he decides to have some solid food. Now at this point, his friends are disappointed. They say, oh, Gautama, he's gone soft. He's, he's given up the path. And it's great to realize that at this point, his friends actually aren't really helping. The, the insecurities that we might have about what other people think. Or especially, I think, in our day and age, the insecurity we might have about taking it easy. That caught, that certainly doing more, trying harder is the way. And all these ideas in our head that that's the way. And he's discovering, no, actually, maybe a little less of this kind of effort. And I know in my own mind, it's very, it's been a real journey for me to do less in my meditation. To follow the schedule, to go through and to show up, but with less force, less pushing, orienting towards this pleasure and happiness that is not of the sensual type, but deeper. And then he goes and he receives food. And one of the lovely things I like at this point in the story is that he receives food from a woman, from a young woman. And the feminine, it comes in. He's been doing this very masculine striving and just know, of course, I mean masculine and feminine 
type energy, which all of us have both of, not male and female in that sense. But this energy that is not so pushing, not so hard, that contain, still having the effort, but bringing in some softness, some allowing. And Bhikkhu Bodhi puts it this way, balancing care of the body with sustained contemplation and deep investigation. And this wise effort of balancing the energy and the relaxation trying this and trying that, finding our way. So I'll end this first story of the first leg of the story of the Buddha's life with a poem by Susie Loeffler. It's called, If I Met the Buddha on the Side of Colorado County Road 23. Somehow it seemed so simple, the path you described, so obvious the way. If I set out with your instructions, I could not possibly miss it. I started on the coyote trail behind the hawthornberry bushes, which led to the deeply rutted elk path, which led to the river. I knew the river, the thrill of the descent, adventure around every bend, the focus and balance of being on course. Then there was the swirling, spinning out of control, backwards, upside down, bouncing through rocks, stuck in long, slow eddies, unaware. That wasn't the way you described. I turned from the river, tears in my eyes, ran through the knee-deep muck and marsh grass, fought dense willow, bare-clenched fists stung by nettle, barbed wire snagged my coat. I crossed the dirt road. You weren't there. I climbed through pinion and juniper, through spruce and fir, climbed to the rocky ridge on the snow-covered peak, cold, wet, shivering. I knew this place, too, this desolation and loneliness. Could not be the way you described how, it, how had it sounded so simple, so obvious, this path in the middle? There is so much between the river and the mountain. How could I know? I turned to head down on the way. I climbed a boulder to look over the valley. I laid on top. I breathed in its warmth. It was so simple, so obvious. I almost missed it. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.